0: Digital Gonzo episode 123 dated Thursday the 14th of March 2013 The Sound of Gonzo Volume 6 Welcome to Digital Gonzo. I'm Alex Shaw with another celebration of music in film. Once again, my co-host and I have brought six tracks along to discuss. However, I am now opening up the floor to movies that I actually have every intention of reviewing in full in the near future, as well as those that I've already covered, simply because there are so many wonderful pieces that we can highlight in this manner. Similarly, what better way to give you folks reason to get on board coming shows early than by giving you some musical flavour to whet your appetite. My guest this time around has been on Digital Gonzo a dozen times already and several episodes of Digital Cowboys before that, which is how we first connected. From Kane and Rince, the Right Honourable Mr Joshua Garrity. Hello everyone. Your first one.
1: Okay, this first pick is uh, Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. Um, this soundtrack's kind of weird, because the way it's arranged um, on the CD is it's in movements rather than tracks. So unfortunately, mm. we haven't really got a track name. We've just called it the opening music. Uh, but this music uh, is written by Joe Hisashi, who, uh who is famous for doing a lot of the scores for the Ghibli movies. Um, and this piece of music in particular plays over the opening credits, um, and it's a wonderful piece. So,
0: uh, uh, Well, we have to describe, because a lot of people won't have seen this or even heard of it, because it's, it's a bit more out there yeah. and rare. What, what's the scene? Set the scene for people. Okay,
1: Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind is a post-apocalyptic movie, but it's set like a thousand years after the apocalypse so civilization is slowly starting to rebuild itself it's not quite there but we have communities we have like laws and governments starting to prop up again Um, but what's happened is this toxic jungle is starting to spread over the landscape and if you enter the forest you'll die because the air is toxic. But you can't chop it down because these giant insects will kill you and destroy the village where these people have come from. So it's this inevitable death that's spreading across the landscape.
0: It's an animated film. Actually, it's not a Studio Ghibli film, but it was made by many of the animators who went on to do Studio Ghibli. And is is this a, a Miyazaki film as well? Yes, yeah.
1: It's actually, actually, it's actually based on a manga by Miyazaki.
0: Yeah, he said the only way that he would allow it to be turned into a film if he, is if he was director, and thank God they said yes. So, uh, if you've seen some Studio Ghibli's out there, if you've ever seen Princess Mononoke, it's it's similar in tone and flavour, and definitely worth tracking down. We're going to play the opening track that sort of plays over the titles of it. Or what, what should people be thinking of at this point? Deserts, jungles? What? Um,
1: think about. The sky, actually, because at some point during this piece of music it explodes and the violins take over from the piano, and from that point onwards you're seeing Nausicaa glide across the sky mm. and moving through the clouds. So just have that in your mind while uh, listening to this piece of music.
0: And she's also sort of a, 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 an air glider yeah. type of thing. Okay. So this is the main title for Nausicaa of the Valley of the Winds by Joe Hisashi.
1: This was this team's first movie, and Joe Hisashi started how he mean to go on. This is fantastic. He's produced many other great soundtracks, so if you like that piece, please go and check out some other examples of his work.
0: We went through his, uh, the list of it during the, while it was playing, and he's pretty much scored every single Studio Ghibli film. So he's, he's the musical voice of, uh, of that studio. Okay, at this point in the show, I went on and on and on about Superman, and it just seems like it's a waste of podcasting time and your time because, A, everyone's heard Superman before, so I'm not really giving anyone an opportunity to listen to something different. And B, I'm doing Superman podcasts in a few months' time before the Man of Steel. You're going to get sick of this theme. So, I don't know, I was crazy. It was back in 2012. Everyone was nuts back then. It was The world was about to end. I've decided instead to go for a piece of music sung by Lisa Gerrard. Uh, and she's been on this show before. One of her songs from Layer Cake, Aria, was at the end of Batman Breakdown. I'm going to be using another of her songs in the episode on Why the Last Man. It's uh, coming up in the next few weeks. Uh, She lent her vocals to the song uh, Gotoz Aran from uh, Black Hawk Down. Injection from Mission Impossible 2, which is one of James Batchelor's favourites. She's got this incredible operatic voice, so powerful, and gets straight to your heart straight away. Um, This is See the Sun from Ali, the biopic of Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer of all time by Michael Mann. Will Smith's finest performance, he will never be able to portray a real life figure with such magnetism and power as this film. She is accompanied here by Peter Burke. I'm not a fan of biopics usually, I'm not a fan of sports films, but this is the greatest sports film biopic I've ever seen. It does what the best of them does, which is not only capture the personality of the subject and the people around them but it captures the feel of the world at the time it's set and there's something particularly resonant about seeing will smith a naturally funny uh, charismatic guy playing the the equally explosive ali and he's got this look in his eye like he could do and say anything at any point it's just it's electric to watch honestly recommend and this piece of music i believe is when ali goes to africa See the sun.
1: is from a film called Old Boy which is a South Korean film directed by Park Chan-wok it's part of his Vengeance trilogy uh, the other two films being Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, uh, Vengeance and Lady Vengeance um, the film is about a man who is kidnapped and imprisoned for 15 years without any human contact whatsoever and then without any explanation is released and the whole film is essentially about him discovering why he was imprisoned and finding out who's responsible. And I'm not going to go into any more detail than that. Go watch the film. The soundtrack was written by three people. Sorry if I pronounce your names wrong, guys. Uh, Chao sung Hyung, Lee ji Su, shum Shum-Hung-Jung, I think. That's how you pronounce it. Sorry, guys. Sorry, South Korean people. This track is right at the end of the movie. It's called The Last Waltz. A lot of horrible, horrible things happened during Old Boy, and it was nice to end the movie on a nice, peaceful and relaxed track that allows us to reflect on the events of the film. (laughs)
0: Now this next one is a composer that we've already mentioned and it's pretty much going to be a, a constant fixture on the sound of Gonzo simply because I've got a massive playlist of his music that I love from loads of different films. But one of the mainstays is that he can, he can get a theme that really grabs you and that you run with it and will kind of inform on the, the tone of the movie in a way that's more powerful than a lot of other composers. Hans Zimmer again. Now, this one is not a powerful movie at all, really, but it's the best Michael Bay film ever made. It's The Rock. And this bit of music has actually kind of influenced... Uh, the way that music goes with modern American military since then, it, like stuff like Call of Duty that has this kind of flavor to it. There is the Rock is about the most important movie in terms of influencing Call of Duty, Modern Warfare, more specifically Modern Warfare Two. There's even Green Smoke in Modern Warfare Two. Um, the film is, i don't know whether we'll ever actually re- review it in entirety. I, I think it's, there are many aspects. Of, I can't just say it's great.
1: Just say That's it's not, really fun.
0: Good enough, yeah. It's really fun. It's great seeing Sean Connery uh, effectively reprising his James Bond role again, uh, and up against Nick Cage, who for once, for once, is not too over the top. Although he, d- he does get to shouting quite a lot in this one. He doesn't end up like, you know, very shortly afterwards he portrayed Castor Troy in Face Off, and it was all over after that.
1: I liked how you said uh, not too over the top instead of yeah. not over the top. No, no, he
0: is a bit over the top. Yeah. He shouts occasionally. Very specifically, the, uh, I did some checking up on this. Quentin Tarantino did an uncredited script, Titan, and uh, that actually stands to reason. If you if you listen to some of the, the wittier back and forths in the, the film, it, it does sound like someone smart who understands dialogue has gone through there, which is rare for a Michael Bay film, let's face it. The film for The Uninitiated is about... And actually, this... It's, it's this guy's theme. General Hummel, played by Ed Harris, has led men in and out of conflict for America for decades now and has seen the families of the men he's lost alongside him passed over by the government and denied you know, substantial recompense for the fact that their uh, you know, men and women from their families have died and is sick to death of them being ignored. And the the fairy story... In his words, fairy stories told to them about how their uh, relations died. So he rather unwisely holds the American government hostage by taking over Alcatraz Island with a bunch of tourists there as collateral in case any countermeasures are put into place. He then holds San Francisco to ransom with rockets. It sounds as stupid as I'm saying. Anyway, um... Nick Cage is one of the chemical specialists sent in with this crack team of, you know, black ops folks, along with Sean Connery, the greatest escape artist spy in the world. I- imagine if they caught James Bond back in the late 60s and held him without trial uh, for decades. So there's a whole... I mean, I'm kind of excited about talking about it now because it's a great, <laughs> a stupid but great film. And this piece of music is uh, General Hummel talking to his wife at her graveside about what he has to now do. This kind of put Zimmer on the map in terms of big Hollywood films because before then he'd done things like you know, Rain Man and Black Rain and The Lion King but this is when people started thinking you know what, we can make our A blockbusters seem even more A by sticking Hans Zimmer on there so this is an important song. And while you're listening to this if you're getting a distinctly Metal Gear Solid feeling go with the feeling because Harry Gregson Williams was one of the score contributors on this film. This next one, um, it's been said that you're quite a fan of anime. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that. This is uh, two for three so far on your choices linked to anime. Yeah.
1: So this next one is Summer Wars, uh, a 2010 animated film which I think is highly underrated. It's basically about uh, a not-too-distant future where a digital landscape called oz which is essentially a combination between facebook or any other kind of social network and an mmo like world of warcraft and they've kind of been combined together but it's not just that they actually extend to everyday life like companies have um all their information up on their uh, services like hospitals and um Fire services and all that have loads and loads of information up in this place called Oz. So everything is connected to it. It's not just this playground where people mess about. It is every it's important to everyday life. This soundtrack was composed by Akihiko Matsumoto. Uh, This track is called Oz, the virtual city. And when you're listening to this, I want you to imagine you're entering This virtual landscape where loads of information and images and avatars and all sorts of interesting creatures are whizzing past you as you travel through the information highway.
0: also thoroughly recommend Summer Wars. It's one of the most eye-popping animes I've ever seen. And it's one of the most incredibly switched-on animation movies I've ever seen. I'm very we're very used to sort of Hollywood being several years behind the internet and their version of how things, you know, are on the internet is is always like kind of oh it's quaint. you actually think that's how things are. But um, but this film it, it kind of it predicts like a few years from now things will be like this and it's it's kind of you could buy it.
1: Yeah. There's nothing in there that you think is completely mental. Mm. Um, it, it just We're already so integrated with the internet as a society that it makes sense that we'd go that one step you
0: know, further. And you're right, it is underrated. It's got 76% freshness rating on What and Tomatoes, mainly down to the fact that so few reviewers have actually been counted on it, and five of them were sourpusses. So this next one, um, I haven't got much to say about the film itself. It's a film I'm almost entirely unlikely to ever review. Uh, it's Black Beauty from 1994, uh, which is a, you know a fine adaptation of the uh, the, the classic children's book. Uh, I, I believe this one has Ewan McGregor doing voiceover for the horse. Uh, who, I mean, the whole for the uninitiated, it's a, it's a horse's life story told from a, his point of view. Um, but it starts with this. Wonderful piece of a sort of violin music, which uh, you'll hear in a second, that because of its sort of oldie, worldie, children's bookie feel to it, it was the first piece of music I thought of while I was reading Wolverine Origin, which if you folks have, uh, have read, it's about a young boy uh, in a British Columbian mansion a hundred or so years ago, uh, befriending a, a red-headed girl. And, you know, he's a sickly fellow. And uh, as it turns out, this young lad, Jim Howlett, turns out to be our Logan. Uh, but the whole thing is done like the secret garden. And it's, it's written by Paul Jenkins. An entirely fascinating viewpoint on Wolverine. And it was so
2: cack-handedly
0: portrayed in, for like a, a minute and a half at the beginning of the Wolverine X-Men Origins movie. I mean, the fact that they even used the word origin in there ties it to this story, which makes me ill, because they could really, I mean, frankly, they could just have taken the Weapon X storyline, the origin storyline, woven them together in flashback, and made that the Wolverine movie, and it would would have been fantastic. So really what I'm talking about here is pitching Wolverine origin to you and saying, get hold of the Black Beauty soundtrack and listen to it while you're reading, because they fit together perfectly. If I was going to try to portray the young uh, Wolverine on film, it would be with something that delicate, because he doesn't become tough and uh, full of bitterness and sadness and, and, and confusion until later in life. At this point, he's just this little kid. And it's a really wonderful, sad story, and uh, I utterly recommend it to everyone. Okay so uh the next one your second choice from this soundtrack your first one you gave me was way too industrialized yeah. and and uh, actually on its own didn't really work perfectly as a single to listen to and to to pitch the film and actually your your first choice for uh, summer wars was like that as well it was really kind of it I I compared it to um, Stravinsky in terms of the fact that people would be listening to it going crazy and smashing their iPods because it was so confusing and so out of step with what they were expecting. The film is Fight Club, and your original choice was Who is Tyler Durden? Yeah. Which is a great, wonderful sort of way into the soundtrack. But your second choice is Marla and Why.
1: I chose this track because... Mainly because I just like listening to it on its own it has this nice, really relaxed groove to it. Um, I'm the kind of person who really digs like um, bluesy, jazzy type music, and this kind of starts that way. Uh, but as the track um, goes on, it gets a bit more weird, and a bit more more surreal, a bit more postmodern.
0: Um, Well, it moves on to a a very vivid what sex dream that Jack's having. The, The
1: soundtrack as a whole for Fight Club is really experimental. And I wanted to get one example of this soundtrack in here because I'm a fan of films that try and do something a bit different with their score. There are a lot of films with traditional orchestral scores. I've got three tracks in here that do something a bit different. Fight Club is one of the absolute best.
0: still a weird disjointed piece of music but uh, so this next piece I've just realised is actually since I keyed the last one up with um, Origin is again about a troubled young boy uh, and a vulnerable one but this time it's a child who has now been thrust into a far deeper more disturbing world it's The Sixth Sense. Interestingly enough, it came out almost exactly the same time as Fight Club. It was massively influential in its time as well. For, for me, this is the greatest ghost story told on film. In regards to the impact that the dead would have on the living... Uh, or specifically on the one person who is able to actually see and communicate with them, it's it's chilling, and it's the one time M Night Shyamalan has been so on the money, and not a shot of this film is wasted. It's wonderful, it's horrible, and I will be reviewing it at some point. Now, this piece of music that I've chosen is actually two. Uh, it's the uh, opening run to the church, which is the central theme, uh, and then tape of Vincent. So you start off with this kind of mournful, sad, you know, lonely little boy. The second part, Tape of Vincent, is how this very special ability and special affinity has affected in a genuinely horrible way uh, another child named Vincent. It it, it it just gradually becomes more unsettling until it sort of finally, it pulls in with this very dramatic... There's a collection of notes that could be harnessed, which uh, uh, it's, it's hard to say exactly what, but it reminds you of something that's beyond what we know. And that happens repeatedly in this soundtrack. Uh, It's James Newton Howard. It's James Newton Howard at his absolute best. It's ethereal, and it's a genuinely unsettling movie with a kind of wonderful resolution and immensely powerful score. Uh, One of the lines that Cole says in the movie is... uh equating being in the presence of the dead as feeling like you're falling down and there's repeated times in the score where Howard instills in his audience that same feeling of vertigo of being unsupported by the world that you know and being very alone in a frightening place If you remember in the film, he listens back to a tape of where he was talking to Vincent and then he leaves him alone for a while and then comes back and says it's cold. And then he goes back to the moment that Vincent was on his own and then turns up the tape over, you know, as high as it could possibly go and hears a voice.
1: Yeah. Oh, Christ. It's really, really hard to believe that this film is the same the same guy who did The Last Airbender.
0: It really is.
1: Uh, the next film, I'm, uh, film soundtrack I'm going to talk about is Lost in Translation. Uh, Lost in Translation is a 2003 film directed by Sofia Coppola, um, starring Bill Murray and Sc- a very young Scarlett Johansson.
0: Um, <laughs> I haven't seen it recently. I'd imagine i will be like, "Whoa, she's it was Black Widow!" Eighteen
1: at that point, I believe. Um, yeah. The film is a. Well, let's be honest here. It might be subtle, but it is a love story uh, between two characters at very different points in their lives. Bill Murray's having a midlife crisis and Scarlett Johansson's character is kind of at that point where she's very young and she doesn't know what to do with her life. Uh, But also... While this love story's going on, the film's almost like a documentary about modern Japan. And there are a couple of scenes in the film where it's almost like Sophia Coppola's just going, Look at Japan. Look at it. it's isn't, great. Isn't it crazy? Yeah, isn't it crazy? <laughs> um and this the piece of music we're gonna be talking about is called Alone in Kyoto yeah. which is played while Charlotte, which is Scarlett Johansson's character, is wandering around Kyoto just is she alone? Uh, yes, she, yes, I believe she is. Really um, is. And she's just taking in the culture and um, examining, because what she's witnessing is old Japan, not new Japan. Um,
0: oh, yeah, the, the Shinto shrine. Yeah. In there. Is there, is there a, a marriage goes on at the same yeah. time that she's, she's watching? Yeah. Um,
1: uh, this track is, because uh, Lost in Translation's soundtrack is constructed... Uh, through a lot of pieces of licensed music and some original tracks that were made by different people for the film. Uh, This one was made by Air. And you've probably heard this track before, even if you haven't seen the film. I've heard this on a number of different adverts. Um, It's a really nice uh, contemporary piece of instrumental music.
0: next one is from, again, this sort of recurring theme for me of um, children being put in unpleasant situations. Um, it's actually from Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events, a film that I sh- should probably be reviewing at some point. It's from a series of books and... This first film covers the first three of them, and they they had planned to do more, but they were also hoping to make a bajillion dollars from this first one, and it didn't make a bajillion dollars. So it's the only one, and it will probably be the only one. It's an oddball little kind of I want to say Tim Burton esque, but the good kind of Tim Burton, and um, it has Jim Carrey in a, 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 a you know in one role in multitudes of disguises acting totally wild and crazy again. Uh, but it also has some really good child actors. Liam Mackin and Emily Browning play uh, Klaus and Violet. Uh, and there's also a, a baby named Sonny who bites. Their parents are killed in a horrible freak accident and the Baudelaire orphans are sent to live with their uh, cruel, negligent uh, very eccentric, and uh, very greedy uncle, played by Jim Carrey, Count Bo And the, their adventures seem to stem from them trying to get away from him and going to different foster parents and ending up with him pursuing them even further because he wants to get his hands on their inheritance. And there's, it's kind of an uneasy film, but it's also really... It's not the least bit patronizing to children. In fact, it it prizes and cherishes intelligent children and, you know, slightly more forward-thinking, deeper, darker-thinking children. It's narrated by Jude Law magnificently, as the author Lemony Snicket. Musician behind it is Thomas Newman. Now, I had him on for uh, episode two with the Meet Joe Black track. And this one isn't actually a million miles away from it. It's also not a million miles away from Finding Nemo, but it's stuck in my head. Now, this is at the very end of the film where the children discover a letter from their parents that, that was sent to them while their parents were still alive and that they had no idea what was going to happen. And it's a wonderful binding moment that kind of repairs their shattered family. And even though there aren't going to be any more films to do with that, it's kind of a really nice sort of capper on this particular story. Uh, So uh, this is uh, Thomas Newman's The Letter That Never Came.
1: The last film I've picked is Disney's Hunchback of Notre Dame. This film is one of Disney's more underrated films, for my money. Uh, It was released in 1995, and it was part of Disney's renaissance in the 90s, kind of started with The Little Mermaid in the late 80s.
0: A second renaissance, because they had one when uh, when Walt was going, and then there was a lot of wilderness years after his death. But then they recaptured it, starting with Little Mermaid, and finishing Tarzan. Yeah. Oh, no, hang on. Lilo and Stitch. Um, This score, like many of the
1: films that Disney produced during the 90s, was composed by Alan Menken. And I picked this track because it comes right at the end of the film. And most Disney films are known for their big musical numbers, but this was a piece of the score without any songs or lyrics apart from the Latin choir, that really stuck out in my head. It's a fantastic and epic, I know we overuse that word in these podcasts, but it really is an epic piece
0: of music. I would like a a sheet with synonyms for epic so that we don't end up overusing it. There's going to be an all-Disney episode of The Sounds of Gonzo, and Hunchback is one of the ones I could definitely use because it's got that Broadway musical kind of, you know, big event... Type uh, deal going on, and actually the the first track where they uh, explain to you uh, who Quasimodo is. Actually, I think I'm probably going to use that then because um, it's it's a it's a great setup for uh, as you say an underrated and unseen Disney film at the time. Toy Story came out at around about that time, and everyone was suddenly blown away by this new 3D animation. So 2D animation kind of took a back seat. And also, because it and Pocahontas have been kind of a little bit, well, I'd say depressing, uh, people were less able to accept them and embrace them than they were, say, Aladdin, and to a lesser extent, The Lion King. Yeah. Lesser extent, as in it was still depressing on some levels, but it also had that epic quality to it.
1: This is a film that... I think found its audience years after its release because it's mm. I and one of the criticisms of the film it's it is that it's a bit confused about who its audience is because sometimes yes. it has these gargoyles who are clearly targeting at the kids <laughs> but then you have a character like Frollo who is so adult and mature as a villain that it, it, it's you know. Who, who are you trying to please here but it's kind of it 's really good to watch like many years after just to examine it and uh, see all these different things that are going on in the film
0: okay, so this is Sanctuary by Alan Mencken and Stephen Schwartz, and it takes place at the very very end and If you folks want to just sort of picture in your heads if you haven 't seen the film Quasimodo who's been told his entire life that he is deformed and ugly and needs to be uh, kept away from the people lest he taint them with his foulness by this horrible vampire of a judge named Claude Frollo, finally stands up against him and stands between him and a gypsy girl that he's obsessed with and tries to prevent him from executing her in the town square. final piece of music is going to be from a film that I have absolutely going to review very very soon but I wanted to give this one piece of music its chance to grab hold of the people who haven't yet seen this film and convince them because frankly if you've not yet done it this will sway you just I'm banking on that it is called how to train your dragon this piece of music is called test drive And it is one of the most powerful combinations of exhilarating music and exhilarating film that I've ever witnessed. This was a 3D film, and I don't care about the 3D version of it. But when I watched it at home for the first time ever, it's when the uh, young Viking who has first worked out how to harness the dragon he's just befriended and actually fly... On the back of and with it and help this dragon toothless to tooth fly because without his uh, technological aid the dragon can't even spread its tail feathers anymore. It's been he's been uh, wounded. I'm assuming you've seen this one. Oh, absolutely!
1: Josh. If, uh, yeah. if Alex's uh, opinion on this film wasn't enough, um, I think this is an absolutely fantastic film and it's DreamWorks' is best. And if this was a Pixar film, like. I, I wouldn't be able to tell, you know. It's mm. that kind of quality. Um, yeah. Please go and watch this film.
0: It's uh, Chris Sanders was uh, one of the uh, men behind it, and he was uh, behind Lilo and Stitch, uh, the aforementioned uh, Disney film, which is again about two misfits finding each other. Well, this piece of music is the first test flight where Hiccup gets onto the back of uh, Toothless. And I found myself while watching it on the sofa, leaning to the left and the right as the flight was taking place. There's a sort that you can feel the wind in your face, and you can. Yeah, he's zooming over the sea and weaving in and out of rocks. And in the middle of it, Hiccup comes off his saddle and is tumbling down. But because uh, he's not helping Toothless to actually extend his his tail fluke, his his rear fin, because he can't assist him in that. Toothless can't fly either, so they're both tumbling down to their deaths, and he has to negotiate his way back onto his uh, Toothless' back, and Toothless has to help him, and it becomes about how they are, at this point, becoming one being, dependent on each, either half. And then the, it just roars back up again, and they, and they fly back through into the air. It's incredible. and I'm going to close out now, and then we're going to finish with this piece of music. Uh, so before we go... Just give us one really good episode of Cane and Rince that people should check out.
1: Um, I think you should check out the Bastion Cane and Rince, simply because it links in with this episode, particularly because the music in Bastion is absolutely fantastic, so go check that that out.
0: I'm fairly certain that if we, uh, well, when we do our first um, video game related musical, Sound of Gonzo, Build That Wall is going to be in there. Thank you very much, Josh. And, folks, if you like the amount of uh, detail and effort that goes into uh, reviewing movies on uh, Digital Gonzo, that is matched in Cane and Rinse for video games. So, check it out. Okay, so this is How to Train Your Dragon, Test Drive, by John Powell, who is absolutely one to watch. I believe he did the music for the Bourne Trilogy. He's contributed to Shrek... He did do the Bourne Trilogy. He did Mr. and Mrs. Smith. X-Men 3 The Last Stand. Mm, well, we all have our off days. Uh, but How to Train Your Dragon is absolutely magnificent. Because it's, it's set sort of in, the, kind of in the outer Hebrides, there's this kind of a Scottish flair to it as well. So you get this pipe music in there as bagpipes, and then you get sort of the Scottish flute it, mixed into the music. Go running to this music, out on the hill, in, in amongst the heather, bounce off rocks like a mountain goat. You'll love it. How to train your dragon, test drive, John Powell. Ready, three, two, one, go.